Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Mom. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life, and I'm so excited that you've joined me today to continue our discussion around feminism that we've been carrying on this year. Today we're going to get to some of kind of the juicy stuff as we dive in to modern feminism, what most people consider actual feminism. Before I get into some really fascinating thoughts I have to share with you, um, wanted to make sure that you're aware that our MDM celebration, which was going to be live, is now going to be online. We had complications with our venue and complications with our event planner uh, because of COVID and then all kinds of other complications, and we just couldn't make it work. So it will be September 12th for the first 100, and then, assuming we get beyond 100, we'll also offer a second session of the same content on September 26th. And we have extended our early bird discount of 30%. So the price dropped by $30 because we went online and we promised everyone we had this COVID contingency and promised you that we would lower the price if we had to go online. And so we've reimbursed all of those who um, have already signed up and you get 30% off of that. So I think it puts the price at something like $35. It's just almost nothing. And you'll join us all day. You'll have access to the recordings as you watch it with us for that day. And we'll be live together all day in an online meeting room doing a whole bunch of breakout sessions in different size groups to facilitate mentoring you through the content. So you'll learn a concept and then you'll um, practice it on your own. You'll do some journaling, brainstorming. You'll get some mentoring and in addition to being able to watch those videos, you won't keep the recordings forever. That's a little bit of an upgrade to get the recordings for a, uh, for a lifetime, but you'll have access to them that day and all the mentoring and the live event will also send you an action plan card, your own uh, journal with our logo on it this year and a list of principles. So it's really just quite a great deal. So I would encourage you to get signed up and join us in September. I've Boy, the research on it has just been phenomenal. I understood so many of these principles and was so excited to share them with you, but the fruits of my extended research these last few months has just left me with just incredible content to share. So really, really excited about that. All right, let's dive into what I want to talk to you about today as we continue this feminism series. Marilyn French, who was an author of uh, one of the books that contributed uh, to the kind of the modern feminist revolution, they were Betty Friedan's book, kind of launched it in the early 60s. Marilyn French's book was written in the 70s, many of them were. But I want to tell you something that she said on one of the documentaries I watched. Uh, it's so fascinating to me that this is something she, is, she would say about feminism. She said, feminism is my religion. 
I wouldn't know how to think without it. Now, this is the reason why we talk about worldviews at the Mission Driven Mom, and it's an important reason why we work on worldviews in level three of the academy, because we think of you know belief systems as simply being the, in the religious realm, and that's not the case at all. Many people have belief systems, what we call worldviews, built around any number of beliefs that might be agnosticism or atheism in Marilyn French's case and in some of these feminists and they call themselves radical feminists uh, it's it's a religion it's a way of thinking it's a way of functioning in the world it's a way of interacting with the world it answers questions like you know what what is the importance of life what am I supposed to do while I'm here what matters most, who am I, who are others, uh, what's most important. And so I just thought that was just so incredibly fascinating. And it really is a great segue into some of the things I want to share. I'm going to talk to you about some of the catalysts of the modern feminist movement and then some of the most important lessons that I've learned. So you could kind of say, and this is the story that's always told, that modern feminism began with the publication of a book called The Feminine Mystique. This was written by a woman named Betty Friedan, and it was published in 1963. The story that's always told, in fact, there's an author that wrote a book, his name's Daniel Horowitz. He's an extensive historian and clearly a very um, liberal leftist thinker He's very supportive of everything Betty Friedan did and loves her work. But he wrote a book called Betty Friedan and the Making of the Feminine Mystique. And what he shares there is that the narrative that's been passed down about how this book came to be is actually not true. And it's fascinating. I watched this lecture of his and he was talking about how, you know, I don't blame Betty. We all kind of rewrite our own history and we all make a narrative that explains who we are and where we're at and especially women are are more apt to do this kind of thing and he kind of makes excuses for her several times about why it was that she must have told a different story than what actually really happened but she was still alive when he wrote this book and she didn't like it <laughs> she was not supportive of what he wrote but he actually went back and he read all the original documents and he got the whole story of her past and he tries to show that if you look at the real story from his vantage point it's even more cool because it shows that she was prepared for 20 years to write this book and that she had all this history and experience interacting with other people and organizations that where she learned so much and that it wasn't just her book that caused this to happen. It was, you know, a movement that was happening in America. And she didn't like that. In fact, he even cites, he says, everywhere you go, every reputable source will tell you the same story about the feminine mystique. And that is that Betty Friedan was a traditional suburban housewife, kind of doing her thing, minding her own business in the suburbs with her three kids feeling super dissatisfied and unhappy and unfulfilled 
And she woke up to the women problem and she wrote this book to let other women in America know the truth about being a housewife and the truth about being a housewife, especially in the 50s in America and what that meant and what that looked like and why it was such a bad idea and what the feminine mystique was to help other women wake up and help them know that they weren't alone in their pain and in their struggle. But actually, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> and Daniel Horowitz figured that out and wrote this book to kind of expose the truth. And he felt that he was doing something helpful. He felt that he was helping the uh, democratic, kind of left-wing, liberal, somewhat radical group to better understand their own history and kind of what's gone, gone on. In fact, he quotes the Cambridge Dictionary of American Biography from 1995, and this is what it says, and this is how he said it. He said, he quoted, married in 1947, and he said, that's true. And the next part says, for almost the next 20 years, she lived the life of a conventional suburban housewife and mother. And he said, that's not true. So this is important to understand who Betty Friedan was. And I'll tell you why. Because the more I've studied about feminism, about who the women were that came to leadership in the movement, that wrote the books and led the organizations and put on the marches, they were very much like Betty Friedan. They all have so much in common. I can't, I couldn't believe it. I was constantly surprised by the fact that they all kind of came from the same political and personal space and wanted pretty much the same things. So why did Betty Friedan rewrite her own history? Why did she say that she was a conventional suburban housewife and mother, that her life was just like everyone else's. I mean, if her life was really different, full of awards and um, impressive credentials, which it was, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, why would she hide that? Well, there's a handful of reasons that Daniel Horowitz gives, but one of the th reasons that he said, probably the most important reason was that the success of the book was due in large measure to its claim that it spoke to and from the experiences of a suburban housewife in the 1950s. It was specifically because she had couched the book a specific way. In fact, she had several drafts of the book that he read through and he saw how the book changed shape over time and was very fascinated by how she finally decided to promote the book as her being one of these women, understanding exactly how they feel and exactly where they're coming from and feeling that kinship and that sisterhood that helped make the book more meaningful to them. So the real story of Betty Friedan is that she came from a small town. She was Jewish and she experienced some anti-Semitism as a kid and that she was highly ambitious and very, very intelligent. She had done well in high school. She said she was accepted to all the universities she applied to. 
she decided to go to Smith College. She wanted to go to the University of Chicago where Robert Hutchins was. And, and if I do a history of education, I'll talk more about him. But that's fascinating to understand that he was reviving the Great Books program and she wanted to be part of that, but she said it was too close to home. So she decided to go to Smith College instead. And Smith College was this really unique place so this college was deeply invested in hiring refugees from Germany and Austria in the 1930s. And she got there, I think, in 38 or 39. So 60% of the faculty were women, and there were quite a few Jewish teachers. And those two factors were really quite unique. Far more women and Jewish teachers at Smith College at this time than any other American university. But also they were refugees. So they were very anti-Nazism and strong anti-fascism. And what makes this situation so interesting and unique is that in addition to these being women and Jews, and in addition to these being refugees and anti-Nazism, anti-fascism, the reverse side of that is that they aren't Americans. And they're not going to teach a lot of really thoroughly researched and well understood American history. They're not necessarily going to be in a position to teach good governmental and economic principles, which was heavily the focus over at the University of Chicago under Robert Hutchins. So she got this really different education just because of the college that she chose. And what happened when she was there, she had some really dominant women professors who seemed to kind of have it all, who were teachers, professors, mothers, very brilliant, accomplished, published, all those things. And one of the things they taught her there was that Nazism put a huge emphasis on mothers being stay-at-home moms. They put a huge emphasis on children as central to the family, as the role of the mother to be in the home. They celebrated motherhood and they minimized the intellectual capacity of women and that women were very emotional. In fact, there was one specific lecture on these concepts. She took copious notes on this particular lecture and it laid a foundation between the kinds of people that were there and the kinds of conversations that were going on. She became very anti-fascist, but she also became, interestingly, quite pro-socialism. She never joined the Communist Party, but she dated uh, a young man who was a member of the Communist Party, and she ran in those circles and had many close friends that were investigated as communists, and she was very much in sympathy with communistic principles and ideas. And from the time that she was in college, saw being a full-time housewife as very confining. I mean, before she even was one, felt that it was something that she didn't want because it was a Nazi idea. She came to see conventional conservatism and traditions, including religion, as oppressive and suppressive to the and the real enemy of women. She was constantly writing and trying to fight for lots of causes, but for the cause of women especially. 
Now she was super successful at Smith. She won major awards every year that she was there. She was the editor in chief of the college newspaper as a senior. And in fact, Pearl Harbor was hit her senior year and she didn't want us to enter the war and she was denounced in front of the student body publicly for trying to continue to encourage Americans to stay out of the war effort because the, the school was realizing, man, that just can't happen. She was always radical, always very ambitious, always uh, wanting to champion the underdog. Now, people are complicated. We have lots of different motivations and and urges and desires going on inside us. And sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, we don't even know what those are. Now, Betty Friedan had good intentions. In many instances, she really did care about people and she wanted to help them. One example is when she was at the university, she was often pitted against the wealthy girls that were there. And she was one of the few that would talk to the maids that cleaned up their rooms in the cafeteria. And she was made fun of for befriending them. And that was kind of a theme in her life that she did want to champion the underdog. In that senior year, she saw these, these maids and housekeepers of the university seeking a charter for a union, and she supported them in the paper. Another interesting thing that happened to her, and I never knew anything about this place, there's a little place called Highlander Folk School, and it has a really interesting history. You should go look it up. And actually, Rosa Parks attended this Highlander Folk School just a few months before she wouldn't get out of her seat on the bus. In fact, she said herself that many people say she didn't get up because she was tired, but that's not true. She said she was tired of all the oppression. Highlander Folk School was a place that specifically trained people to take their part in changing institutions and forming unions and other organizations to, to fight in a kind of political way. It was a training ground for the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, which was a federation of, or of unions that organized workers into industrial unions. Betty Friedan went there the summer between her junior and senior years. So by the time she had finished college and she got top honors in school, she was editor-in-chief of the, of the paper. I mean, she was already highly accomplished. She had proven her brilliance, she had proven her writing gifts, and she also knew how to be a community organizer. This was 20 years before she wrote this book, The Feminine Mystique. She then went on to UC Berkeley and did some graduate work in psychology. She, was, she kept kind of winning these scholarships and she won one for a doctorate degree, but she didn't follow through and finish. She said she, later she said she regretted it. She worked with Eric Erickson there, which I think is super cool. But anyway, she finished up that um, master's work, that graduate work, and then she went on to be a union journalist. For six years, she worked for the UE News. And this union went from 600,000 to 200,000 members while she was there because they were under attack because their leadership was seen as communistic and they were seen as really radical. So she keeps positioning herself, placing herself 
with other communistic radical groups. Uh, they had very progressive ideas about blacks and about women, which actually today we would probably find uh, very reasonable with definitely within their rights, but the, their rights didn't uh, weren't honored as they are now. And so she had to, she was fighting for them. She was always fighting for something, always, always fighting. She stood for a wide range of issues, discrimination of all people. She was against the Cold War. She criticized greedy corporations, campaigned against world hunger and um, many, other, many other issues. She wrote dozens of articles and two pamphlets on women's history and sex discrimination. And she was well aware of the discussion on women's issues. In fact, in 1943, 20 years before she wrote this book, she, she wrote an article that said, men, there is something cooking in your kitchens. Women are waking up to the fact that they can produce things other than babies. She said she had already learned that housekeeping was boring and solitary in this article. And she hadn't even gotten married yet. She didn't get married for a few more years. This was just right after college. So she definitely came in to all of this with some preconceived beliefs and ideas she she saw things from a certain perspective. She had a very specific worldview, and she thought things should really be a certain way. She wrote an article announcing the formation of the Congress of American Women, which was later disbanded by McCarthy. In her first apartment complex after she was married, she led a rent strike, and she turned their community newspaper into an activist publication. <laughs> Um, she wrote and edited a series of articles about family showing husbands and wives could equally separate family chores. And again, some of these things sound very reasonable. They were good things to fight for. It's not like she was, you know, like a bad person. She just needed to champion a cause. And she had been educated in a certain way and she thought a certain way and she absolutely believed that's how things ought to be and she just never ever changed her mind and she never looked at the other side. In 1957, 10 years after she'd been married, she moved into a big home in an exclusive neighborhood and she ran a project called Intellectual Resources Pool. This was a nationally recognized foundation funded which funded a series of programs from social enrichment for schools to adult education. In the meantime, she was also a freelance writer and employed an agent. She wrote articles um, that opposed the Cold War and that women shouldn't be content to stay at home and take care of kids. This author of this book about her also talks about how if you read the drafts, you see how she would write really passionately and then she'd have to tone it down in order to get published. And I do think another reason why she changed her story in writing her book was to distance herself from her communistic background because she didn't really want that to be commonly known. She wanted to appeal to the average middle-class housewife and most of them were not communists. <laughs> and she also wanted to distance herself from articles that she had written that were in direct opposition to what she wrote in The Feminine Mystique. Now, she does mention in The Feminine Mystique a little bit about, you know, I even wrote articles on the other side. I thought that staying at home was a great thing to do. But actually, that isn't what she thought. In her drafts, you can see she didn't believe that even before she became a wife and a mother. 
So the real story behind the feminine mystique is that there's an author who has positioned herself as sympathetic to the average American middle-class housewife in the 1950s staying home and bored and unfulfilled when actually she doesn't even take a breath between projects. I mean, they had enough money. I don't know if they employed housekeepers and things, but she was definitely not a conventional housewife. And although she, I do know that when she wrote The Feminine Mystique, she did it full-time at the library. For five years, I think, she researched and wrote the book, which means that kids went to school and she went and worked full-time, you know, basically. So she was very fulfilled. She got all kinds of accolades and had all kinds of accomplishments, was professionally published all over the place and was the leader of important organizations and, and helped unions and tried to start unions and all kinds of things. Now, when she started writing the book, she had two works that she went back to multiple times. And I, I often tell you know, students or moms, when we're talking about a certain issue, whatever, of course, I always say, you know, please do your homework. Please know what you're talking about. Please do a little bit of research. And, you know, every author has a worldview and they have a belief system and they are trying to convince you of something, even if it's a novel, they are conveying who they are on the paper. And so it's important for you to know who they are and it's important for you to know their influences. Like if you go to Wikipedia and you look up some great books thinker, it'll say who they were influenced by and who influenced them. And they're kind of in camps. Like there's kind of pretty much the same two camps that there were at the time of Plato that there are today. And it pretty is pretty uniformly <laughs> the same people in the same camps. And so the people, these two authors that she was reading and returning to over and over again are so key because they explain why she, you know, part of why she was writing what she was writing, why she believed what she believed in. And of course, it goes all the way back to her childhood and to her time in college. The first book is from a woman named Simone, Simone de, Beauvier, de, de Beauvier. I think that's how you say it. It's French. She wrote a book in the 50s called The Second Sex. Now, she had a lifetime companion that we, they actually didn't really live together much named Jean-Paul Sartre. And I have been meaning to read him for a long time. I still haven't read, read much of him. I've, I've watched some of his um, interviews and things because I know that he was played a part in the modern and the postmodern worldview that's really dominant right now. It was fascinating to me to find out that de Beauvoir was his like lifelong companion, but they had they never got married and they had a quote open relationship. And so that basically meant that they slept together, but then they had other, you know, relationships in the meantime. But they were like intellectual companions or whatever. They had this soul partnership that wasn't exclusive or whatever. And so she writes this book. I have glanced at it, looked through it. It's called The Second Sex. I am not going to read it. It's, it's, it's important historically because it's pretty much the first book that tries to look at history from the feminist perspective and say, okay, so let's look at history through the eyes of women. What were women? What was it like? What did it look like in the West? How are we talked about? All this kind of thing. 
What can we do about it? And what's interesting is she goes through, okay, well, what should women do? They could do this, they could do that, blah, blah, blah. Um, really the only way that women are ever going to be happy and fulfilled is if they have a career. That's basically the conclusion of the book is that if they have a career, they'll have their own money and they can do what they want with their own money and they can have expression and creativity and that will make their lives meaningful because they're not going to find deep meaning and purpose being a stay-at-home mom. It's, and, and of course, de Beauvoir never married or had children so that she could pursue all her other interests. So I'm not sure how, why she would know, but that's what she says in this book. And so this is a huge influence. She's returning. She was, in fact, as soon as it was written and published into English, uh, Betty Friedan got her hands on it and had read it multiple times. And it was a, it was a hugely informed this work. Now, I want to say a couple more things about de Beauvoir because I think it matters who people are. I think it matters what their core principles are, that they cannot divorce their character from their beliefs and from their behavior and from whatever they create, that their creations are an extension of who they are. And so I think it's important that you know a little bit more about who this woman was. She had several other relationships. Uh, one was with a man named Nelson Algren, who was an American. He won the National Book Award for a book called The Man with the Golden Arm. And she was buried with the ring that he gave her. But even though she had Sartre and and Algren and other lovers, she also was bisexual. And um, she had relationships with young women. And Sartre also participated in this behavior. She was a professor, and one of her former students in her memoir said that she had been sexually exploited by de Beauvoir who was in her 30s when she was teaching there. And then later she was suspended from her teaching job from an accusation from another student who was 17 who said that she had seduced her. And then then when the parents uh, put forth formal charges, she lost her license to teach in France. Later on in the 70s, De Beauvoir, Sartre, Foucault, and Derrida, who those two men are pretty much seen as the founders of postmodernism, which is the lens through with through which we're, much of the West, especially in America, is starting to see the world. It's the worldview taught on our university campuses. It originated with these men in France. And I just want you to know that this group in 1977 signed a petition seeking to abrogate the age of consent in France. What this means is that they wanted to decriminalize all consensual relations between adults and minors below the age of 15. And they made comments about how it was ridiculous to say that children couldn't be consenting and couldn't understand what was happening in a sexual relationship with an adult. So that gives you a co- some context of the fruits of the kind of people that were writing the books, that were lending themselves. And this is why, and I, 
I haven't decided if, if I'm going to do a Facebook Live or another podcast on this, but I I sat my kids down and we did an activity last night, and I, and I want to do it with some of you, but on a podcast or in a Facebook Live or something, but we look, so many people don't understand how to really understand what's going on, and they look at that tip of the iceberg, they look at what seems like something decent. What's feminism? Oh, we just, it means we, we want women to have rights. It means we want them to have equal pay. Well, that sounds reasonable. Okay, I'm a feminist. And they look no further and they dig no deeper. The deeper I dug, layer upon layer, and saw what this rested on, you know, what foundation this rested on, and what foundation this rested on, and and who were the women who rose to the leadership? And what was their character? And what was their personal life like? And what did they believe? And, and what were they promoting? And why were they promoting it? It was just so incredibly eye-opening. And I'll tell you, there were a lot of surprises. The other huge influence for the feminine mystique was Frederick Engels. And if you know who Frederick Engels is, he is the one that funded Karl Marx. He and Karl Marx were partners. Frederick Engels' father was a wealthy capitalist. Engels' father funded their work to write the Communist Manifesto and form the Communist Party. And uh, Marx, Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto with Engels' help. Engels wrote other, what are considered you know, important works around communism. And then after Marx died, Engels wrote an essay called The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And in this work, he wrote that the liberation of women will only come when they enter the workforce. So really, you have Engels, who is the founder of communism, de Beauvoir, who studies him and writes her book, The Second Sex, and reiterates women have to have careers. That's the only way they're going to be happy. And then you have Friedan, who echoes that. What's interesting to ponder about this is now we've got it. And we can ask ourselves the question now, did it work? Are all the women in America blissfully happy because they can work as much as they want and have the careers that they want to have? And actually what we find is that depression is higher than it's ever been and suicide rates are higher than they've ever been. So it's something to think about. Now, in the meantime, her college was having its 15th anniversary, and the students were asked to fill out a survey of kind of how they were doing. And so she got these, and she read through them, and in the book, she, in fact, the author of, the one of the reasons why I give a lot of credence to the historian who wrote this other book about her is because he believes in everything that she did. He's trying to promote what she's doing and support her, and so he has no reason to say things that I would consider negative about her. And because he's clearly done his homework, he has a whole case full of all the original documents that he studied. And one of the things that he mentioned about all of this is that she also embellished these surveys. She stated in The Feminine Mystique that these women were very unhappy because they were college graduates and all they could do was marry and have a family and they were so unfulfilled. But actually many of them said that they were doing well and liking that their lives. 
Now, a couple more things that are interesting about her. When, if you know who Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are, they were executed for for um, being communists and, and, and traitors and things. Well, <laughs> when they were on trial, Betty Friedan wrote an outline for a play about them. She sketched out the scenes and characters and she imagined herself in the, drill, in the jail trying to find some way to spare their lives. She wanted to rouse the public so that they wouldn't die for their beliefs. So he concludes, this is not a story of how one woman came to consciousness about her role as a housewife. It is about a national movement with many people involved of which she was a part. Now, on the other side of things, you can, I, I, you don't need to read the Feministique if you want to. You could read summaries of the chapters. It's, it's actually quite intellectual. Um, it, it was read. They only printed 6,000 copies. Millions were sold. It really was a huge catalyst for what went on after. But really, the conclusion that she draws, she, she brings you in with the problem that has no name. You're, you're, you're a full-time housewife. You know you're unhappy. You know you have this problem with no name. We all have this problem with no name. And what we really need to do is have careers. And it's fascinating to me because she actually doesn't, she says that full-time moms are actually pretty sexually fulfilled. But then the feminist movement turned into the sexual revolution which is really quite fascinating because I'm not even sure Friedan had all of that stuff in mind at the beginning. She wanted something a little bit differently. But I do have to say that in the 40s and 50s, there was this surge of fewer girls finishing college, girls marrying younger, girls staying home with their kids. And if you look at the media of the time, and I this really resonated with me because we watch a lot of old movies at our house, and I have noticed a difference between the movies of like the 20s and especially in the 30s, maybe early 40s, and then the movies, especially on TV, uh, you get into the 50s and 60s. There are some, especially in the 60s, kind of start getting back to the career, career girl. But in the magazines, and she studied the magazines, so she uses the magazines and the magazine articles to make a case, and she does a thorough job of showing that... The magazines and the media were showing women as kind of inept, kind of like dolls. If you've read Ibsen's A Doll's House, that is, you know, it's, I like 75, 80 years earlier. But it's a fascinating work to compare because, you know, the women are seen as dolls to be cared for, as, you know, inferior intellectually, as needing to stay home and all that kind of stuff. So she's reacting to that, and women have really been bombarded with that, and so they might have been kind of sick of that and ready to hear that they were smart and that they could do hard things and that they could talk about complicated topics and all that kind of stuff. So the book is printed, and consciousness raising begins. Now what this means is every movement has a book, and that book almost always has a book, and that book unifies everyone around certain key ideas and then they become unified to go out and promulgate these ideas and perpetuate and grow the movement and bring more and more people along with them on this journey to change society somehow and that's why we have the mission driven life book and we call ourselves a movement because we want to promote 
a certain way of living and a certain way of being that we believe is more principle-centered and more true and more connected to God. And we hope that that heals individuals and heals families and heals communities. So she was doing the same thing. So for the next 10 years or more, groups of moms and groups of women would get together in their living rooms and read this book and read other books. In fact, one of the leaders of modern feminism said specifically that they read those exact two books that Friedan had used in writing her book. And I don't know if they'd had a conversation. I don't think they had. But those were the seminal books for looking at, you know, the role of women in a, in a different way. And so what they wanted to do was talk about all the stuff they never talked about. In fact, one of the founders said, you know, she was at one of this consciousness raising groups and she just went ahead and told everybody she'd already had three abortions illegally and realized that her best friend was sitting next to her and she'd never told her best friend. And so it was all about talking about all the things they'd never talked about and talking about what women need and, and talking about, you know, how society had conditioned them and how men were the problem and, and how they needed to change politics and they needed to change society and how unhappy they were and who, you know, all the peoples whose fault it was that they were unhappy. Then in 1966, Friedan founds the National Organization for Women, or NOW, and she becomes its first president, and the movement spreads, more and more leadership arises, and there are independent groups, many of them are tied into NOW, other organizations are started, um, and other books are come out, for example, um, the Female Eunuch by Germaine Greer in 1970, Sexual Politics, Against Our Will, Men and Women and Rape in 1975, um, The Woman's, Woman's Room by Marilyn French in 1977. She's the woman I quoted at the beginning. And this is just perpetuating this way of thinking. They, there's a huge march in New York City. You can see footage of it on, on YouTube. In 1970, they get awareness going. Some women take over the Statue of Liberty and say they're not leaving until certain demands are met. They have a big banner on the side of the Statue of Liberty. So the, the women's movement really, really begins and takes on some real momentum. Some of the, some of the this is Anne Oakley, who was the first social scientist to say that gender roles are conditioned by society and not innate. And she started the conversation about you're assigned a sex, but then your gender is different and you can decide what your gender is and all this kind of thing. And these are her words in one of the documentaries I watched. She said, there are three political statements that point the way to the liberation of housewives. Number one, the housewife role must be abolished. Number two, the family must be abolished. And number three, gender roles must be abolished. Another one of these feminists echoed these ideas, and she followed it up kind of a little laughingly, you know, 20 or 30 years later by saying, what we didn't think about was how else were we going to bring up children. <laughs> exactly. So they just were on fire. You know, movements are full of passion. They can be messy. Um, if they're not overseen, and they're exciting. They are energizing, and that's what's happening. These women are catching hold of these new ideas, and then they go out and they make these demands. So these were some of the things that they demanded. 
free on-demand on abortion, free child care, equal pay with men, more job opportunities, and the Equal Rights Amendment. So that was what they wanted to have happen, and those were some of the governing principles, and those were the people behind the initial books that were written. Now, let me tell you a couple of lessons that I've learned. Next month, we're gonna launch, we're gonna post the interview I had with Anne Schlafly Corey, Phyllis Schlafly's daughter, who's on the opposing side of the feminist movement, and you can you'll learn all about her and about that side from Anne Schlafly Corey, which is really really fascinating. If if you listen to this podcast and you haven't seen it, the video is also still in the Facebook group. You can go there and watch it. But we'll release it as a podcast as well so you can have access to listen to it. These leaders were very similar. They all talked about, they all called themselves radicals. They all talked about left-wing principles. They had no qualms about using those words. They said they were communistic. One of them had been in carried a gun and had been part of a revolution. She said, thank goodness I never killed anybody, but it was really cool at the time. And they were not disgruntled homemakers. I guess there were a couple. Uh, Marilyn French could, could be considered one. She did get married and have children and felt like her husband was abusive. But by and large, these women were single career women who had not spent 20 years trying to make it work at home without no outlet. They were authors, they were revolutionaries, they were left-wing um, women who were unionizers and organizers and intellectuals. They saw, of their own words, they saw men and capitalism as the problem. They, they just, you know, and several of them expressed quite a bit of disdain for all men. In fact, as you can imagine, lesbianism grew up as a very strong hold within the feminist movement. And in fact, many of these leaders talk about how much pressure there was to be a lesbian and there was something wrong with you if you weren't. In fact, they show some speeches where some of the leaders talk about how all women are lesbians and all this kind of thing. Um, so even within the movement, and they talk about how even when they wrote something that was popular and helped other women, um, or help the movement, they couldn't have any accolades. And they were kind of pulled down. They talked about, you know, kind of a, a pot of crabs, that these women were pulling each other down, unfortunately, and couldn't even celebrate individual accomplishment because they were so much all about the mass movement. Now, as I was finishing up my research to come record this podcast, I had this nagging thought in the back of my mind. I just kept thinking, you know, I know that I don't believe with many of the core principles and governing ideas. I mean, by the time you get to the 60s, and especially the 70s, it's clear communism doesn't work. Like, hello, we had plenty of evidence, even by then. In the 80s and 90s, more came, but honestly, it was clear, but they didn't care, you know? and. Obviously not socialism. Obviously, you know, not a free abortion on demand. You've got to be kidding me. So, so on, so I know this, right? And I know that, you know, I mean, one of the founding idea thinkers and, and ideologues is Engels, for heaven's sake, and Marx. And so, and, and de Beauvoir, look at her life. It just, 
So I know this, but on the other hand, I'm thinking some of this stuff makes sense. Like, yeah, I, if women want to have a certain job, if they want to pursue something, and yeah, men can help around the house more. Like, all of that's really reasonable. Like, how are those things together? Like, how is this lump together? And I was feeling confusion around it and, and asking myself, you know, why is this the leadership? Why do some of these ideas sound okay? Why do I know that it feels wrong, but I disagree? And then it hit me. The fundamental underlying paradigm in this entire movement that is the same underlying paradigm of unions, which is why unions so often become corrupt and take advantage of their people and have communistic elements is that the paradigm is we are victims. Men have done it to us. History's done it to us. Society has done it to us. We can't fix it. And so then I think, okay, but that's sometimes that's legitimate. Like with slavery, yes, that's legitimate. You really are a victim. But equal rights for women had already been granted. All of that had been laid to rest. And although certain people wouldn't hire them for certain jobs, and although there may have been some change that needed to happen, the fundamental underlying idea was other people need to change. Who's supposed to change? Other people. Men. Um, the greedy business owners, the governmental leaders, who's supposed to fix it? Society's supposed to fix it and government's supposed to fix it. I'll work really hard. Yeah, I've got to work hard, but I don't have to fundamentally change. I don't have to love more. I don't have to forgive. I don't have to be different. Many of these women talk about the anger that they've carried all their lives over so many of these things. Who created the problem? Other people. What can I do about it? Get other people to change and get other people to rescue me. So of course, when it came to rights, with slavery, for example, yes, we need to codify that in law, that those rights need to be honored. And the civil rights movement was about enforcing things that already were law. It was that the government had said that certain local governments were supposed to do certain things and they wouldn't honor that. And so, again, Martin Luther King Jr. tried to bring about societal change. And what did he do? If you go back and listen to my Nonviolent Resistance podcast, you'll see that Martin Luther King Jr. asked people to change first. They had extensive meetings where these people were asked, can you take a beating without fighting back? Can you love people that are hating you? Can you put God first? And he asked people to change, and then he asked them to go out and love with that change. The feminist movement told women, you don't need to change. You're absolutely perfect the way you are. There's nothing, you know, your problems in your marriage can't be you. You're not unhappy because of you. You're not depressed because you need to change the way that you think and you need to gird up and take care of responsibility for yourself. Everybody else is the problem. 
And so it was full of rage and it was full of outward directed thinking. And these women were not called upon to change internally. They were asking everyone else to be different. So those are some things that we can ponder in any movement, cause, legislation, issue that we're looking at. Dig deep and find the founders. Look at the leadership. Look at the fruits in their personal lives. Look at what you're being asked to do. Look at what rights are being violated by what you're being asked to do. I mean, if we were to give free abortion on demand or if we were to give free childcare, that's just picking the pockets of other taxpayers. Somebody has to bear that burden so that woman can go to work and she doesn't have to pay for her own childcare. And you know, it's just a subversion of rights. So those are some things that I would encourage you to keep in the forefront of your mind when you're considering what's happening in the world and certain issues and, and difficulties that you face. Are people encouraging you to take personal responsibility? Are they asking you to change from the inside out? Is real love, forgiveness, compassion, empathy, seeing people as they are as people, not as problems, because in this instance, what do you, you have two groups. You have the persecutors and you have the victims. The persecutors are the men, the victims are all the women, and the leadership gets to be the rescuers and they get to pat themselves on the back and feel really phenomenal that they're rescuing other people. Not asking them to change, asking them to blame, and asking them to force others to change. So that was quite, uh, a long podcast. I hope that it was helpful and gave you some food for thought and some in insights. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the Facebook group. I want, as we finish up here, to say one thing. I want to reiterate the fact that there are definitely things that I agree with that the feminist movement stood for and fought for. There are definitely, there were definitely changes that needed to be made. The media was was making kind of, you know, making fun of women, like totally downplaying their, their abilities and their potential for sure. You know, women were being encouraged to, to kind of not tap their potential, which is not what we want, but could they have had the outlet in community service work? Yes. They, that's what, that's what Betty Friedan did. <laughs> you know, like she was living the dream and you know, telling other women that she wasn't and that she was unhappy and unfulfilled with what was happening in her life when actually she wanted them to be just like her. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I've said and I don't want you to think that I'm totally against everything that happened, but it's very, very, very important that we get to the bottom of things, that we look really honestly at what the core motivations are, what the governing principles are, what we're being asked to do, and what the movement is asking for, or the cause or the issue, because that will inform you on if you should support it and to what extent you should get involved. All right, thank you so much for joining me. If you've not gotten a copy of the audio book, The Mission Driven Life, head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com. Our new website keeps being delayed, but it will be up and running in uh, about probably six weeks. And so then that, that, that full audiobook will come down. So you might want to take advantage of that if you've not heard it. Thanks for hanging in there with me for this full hour. I hope it was helpful and I will see you next time.